We're in week two of our Advent series uh, this, this December, this Christmas season. And for us, week two is love, right? So we're in the Advent candle of love, the second one being lit today, right? For our passages today, uh, we have Isaiah 49, verse 13 through 18, and Matthew chapter 7, verses uh, 9 through 11. So today, I want to put ourselves back in the feet, uh, try on the shoes of the people who experienced Advent in the first place, right? So we'll do that two ways today. People throughout the history of, uh, of our faith uh, that would have experienced God's love breaking into their lives in brand new ways, right? So this is just an imagination thing for empathy, right? I've made up this person. I didn't give them names. But the first person is uh, someone who trusted Yahweh, who uh, was carried off in the exile of, of Jerusalem when they were sent away to Babylon in the early 500s BC, uh, and who has just heard this prophecy in Isaiah 49, verses 13 through 18. Right, the second one who, um, who we'll put ourselves into the shoes of is a person who had this passage in mind when she heard Jesus Speak the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter uh, 5 through 7. Specifically that message at our second passage for today, Matthew 7 verses uh, 9 through 11. And at last, we'll come back to our own situations, I hope with a refreshed insight of God's inbreaking love. So, person one is in Babylon, completely distraught at the thought of life outside the land. For a Hebrew person, there is no life, there is no promise, there is no us without the land that God promised, without the land of the promise, without a place to worship God, a place to follow through in his commands, a place like the temple. So this person is completely distraught, and they're hearing for the first time Isaiah 49, uh, verses 13 through 18. I'll read it all right here. I have NIV as well. as uh, That's the, the version I'm reading from. Okay. Shout for joy, you heavens. Rejoice, you earth. Burst into song, you mountains, for the Lord comforts his people and will have compassion on his afflicted ones. But Zion said, the Lord has forsaken me, the Lord has forgotten me. Can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she has born? Though she may forget, I will not forget you. See, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are ever before me. Your children hasten back and those who laid you waste depart from you. Lift up your eyes and look around. All your children gather and come to you. As surely as I live, declares the Lord, you will wear them all as ornaments. You will put them on like a bride. So verse 13 starts off with a call for the rest of creation to join in praising God for his deliverance, to join in praising God for coming through on his promises to his people. There's a clear pattern in the Bible when a great herald is making a huge proclamation of praise that they'll call the jury of the created order to join in to witness it. They'll speak to the mountains. They'll speak to the sky. They'll speak to the sun and the moon and the stars, the things that God made with his breath to see he is good. Several uh, psalms and other prophets use this image to talk about how great God is. Right? The praise is due to Yahweh, who comforts and has compassion on the afflicted people. Right? Even though they know this, even though this is true and they have no you know, reason to question God's promises, they still feel like verse 14, like God forgot them. Israel feels forgotten. 
As a quick aside, uh, there's two words for Lord in this verse. Uh, just a little thing I want to highlight quick. Uh, the Lord has forsaken me. The Lord has forgotten me. There's two different words that go behind the words Lord there. Uh, when it's in all caps, maybe you know this, maybe you don't. When it's in all caps, it's his name, Yahweh, right? Like the first time it says Lord, it's in all caps. But when the first, only the first letter is capital, uh, it's the word for Lord, like master, uh, just usually is about God. And then in the Bible, if it's all lowercase, it's the word for Lord, but it's about a person, like King David, for example. Nothing to do with the sermon, just I wondered about that for years, so maybe now someone else doesn't have to. Okay. Yeah, the more you know. Yeah. Got to teach something. All right. So Zion is a name for Jerusalem, right? The, dis- the destruction of Jerusalem was thought to mean the end of the people of Israel. Like I was saying, there's no such thing as the people of Israel without the land, without the holy city, without the temple where God's presence dwelled. For Hebrews, if there's no temple, there's nothing. They look around in their life situations and they feel God must have moved on. For someone to think that they're still faithful to Israel in Babylon makes almost no sense. In fact, all of Lamentations is devoted to fleshing out this thought more fully that to be an Israelite without a temple is to have nothing, is to have nothing. So the only logical conclusion would be that God has moved on. This prophecy does come in the wake of a terrible military campaign uh, in which the Babylonian Empire destroyed and plundered much of the Middle East, conquering most of the known world. They sent off people to Babylon to be citizens there. In many cases, they took no prisoners at all. So in some ways, the people who got sent to Babylon should be thankful that they have their lives. But honestly, what is life without God? That, so they're distraught. They would almost have rather not had a life without God, right? Uh, like I said, Lamentations is a longer, fleshed-out version of this. It captures that end of the world as we know it kind of feeling that survivors felt on their way into exile. So the people of Israel look at their circumstances. Their only logical conclusion is that God has moved on. The prophet, who has just called for high praise for God, knows better. This prophet knows the rest of this prophecy, right? That God has said, here's what I'm going to do, here's what I'm going to do it, and here's when and how, right? So verses 15 and 16, I'll read them again. Can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she has born? Though she may forget, I will not forget you. God speaks comfort to his people. He promises to act with compassion on them. He explains that his devotion to the people who he chose is stronger than that of a mother with a newborn. You don't need to be a parent to understand the connection that a mother has with her newborn baby. Yahweh asks whether a mother would ever turn on her own child. Never. The answer is never. No matter what they do, a mother will never turn on her own child. A mother can't possibly go from loving, lovingly caring for the baby that she's nursing to throwing that baby out to the street or to, to getting rid of that baby or turning on the baby. Often mothers are the, the biggest champions for their children, right? Even though this is true, Yahweh says that the most caring mother will forget about her infant before he forgets about Israel. In this way, Yahweh is our nurse. He's the one who comforts us, the one who sustains us, the one who gives us peace and consoles us. That is devotion. The people of God should expect that same safety, security, and consolation from God that a mother provides for her infant. 
Now the people hearing the prophecy have a choice to make, right? It's simple enough for God to say, this is what I'm going to do. But without any explanation of a plan so far, it's another thing entirely for the Israelites to say, okay, we believe you, God. Like, we believe you. Go ahead. Okay. That's totally a possible response. I don't think it would be mine, if I'm being honest. But here's the point. It doesn't matter what the response is. God's going to come through anyway. Even if God promises something and you are just living in that promise the whole time and you're never doubting him and you're never doubting him and then he comes through, it's good. He's made, made good on his promises. But if he makes a promise and you don't believe him and you struggle and you doubt and you stress and you spiral into some addiction and you completely choose to abandon God, he's still going to come through, right? You're just going to have a bit of a worse time in the meantime, right? Yeah. So for those who decide to trust the promise, they move to a new phase of faith, one of patient anticipation of the love of God to break through into their world. That's what Advent is, right? It's, Advent just means anticipation. The, the thing is coming, and then each of these candles are a different way that we highlight something good God did when Christ came. Today, again, we're talking about love. So to anticipate the love of God breaking through into your life, means you'll have a better time in the meantime while you're still waiting, right? But now I've made a distinction where there isn't one because God proceeds to give the details in uh, the rest of our passage. He promises to extend love to them someday, to bring them back to their city someday. Uh, We'll read verse uh, 16. See, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are ever before me. That's a little confusing if you think we're talking about a person, right? But the uh, the prophet is calling Zion a city that's a place, right? It's, not, it's, it's a thing. He's calling it like it's a person and talking to it like it's a person, right? So Zion is, is a city. It has walls. It has a temple. God says, your walls are ever before me. The ones that, those, uh, that the Babylonians carried off in the exile, those are the ones I think about all the time. I think about restoring Jerusalem back to its former glory. You write a note on your hand so you don't forget. But God wrote his note on this side, right? So he said, you're on on the palms of my hands. This, you can kind of do stuff and not like notice, right? So this isn't a foolproof way of writing notes and keeping track of things. But this way, you you can't do anything without noticing, hey, there's something there, right? Uh, There's something there that it, it doesn't have to hurt or something to just catch your attention every time you move your hands. This is how much God will remember Zion. The walls he's talking about here, like I said, are the walls of the city of Jerusalem. A fortified city is a symbol of establishment and longevity. Jerusalem has spent much time throughout the years with walls intact and walls destroyed. Rises and falls, obedience and disobedience. It kind of lines up with exactly what God said he was going to do the whole time, right? To be engraved on the hand of God is to be remembered by the creator. If his promises are true... He can never be done with Israel, by extension us, right? If his promises are true, he can never be done with Israel. The next verse is verses 17 and 18. Yahweh promises uh, that the children will return and the enemies will depart. The glory of Israel will be restored. I'll read it again. Your children hasten back. Those who laid you waste depart from you. Lift up your eyes and look around. All your children gather and come to you. As surely as I live, declares the Lord, you will wear them all as ornaments. You will put them on like a bride. 
He makes his promise vivid and tangible by providing an image of a two-way road. The city of Zion, like I said, is personified as a woman, uh, as a nursing mother, right? Uh, In the prophecy, she looks up and sees the children of Zion, right, the people of Israel, coming up the hill towards the city. She looks and sees the, the children coming back. They're returning to her. And on the other side of the road, Zion looks and sees the looters and destroyers leaving. She sees their backs as they take off. When the children return and there is not enough uh, space to hold them all, the one who caused the damage will depart. This is his promise that the exile will end. For the prophet and the first people, the, the first person I wanted to put ourselves in the shoes of, the first people who would have heard this prophecy in Babylon, the fulfillment of this prophecy by their wildest dreams would have meant that God would bring the glory of Jerusalem back, forgiving the people, that his love for them would overcome their unfaithfulness as his people. And God did come through on that promise. Uh, He brought the people out of exile, and they rebuilt the temple and the city. You can read uh, most of the end of the Old Testament for that, Ezra and Nehemiah. But it was never quite the same, because no true king was anointed by God or his servants for true rule in the land. You know, someone else always had power in the land in between the exile and the Roman Empire, right? Um, they were always told what to do, and God didn't inhabit the temple in the same way that he had before. Ezekiel's vision in uh, Ezekiel chapter 10, as well as uh, Paul's logic in Galatians 4, indicate that there is something not quite right with the post-exile, pre-resurrection Israel, right? Post-exile Uh, after they came back to the land, and then pre-resurrection of Jesus. There's something not quite right in there. If you want more details about that, I love, I'm a big old Bible nerd. I love talking about those things, so uh, let me know. So that's person one, right? They are waiting and anticipating the love of God to break through to make their circumstances right again. Person two, like I said, is following the rabbi Jesus in the Galilean countryside, She's living in the fruit of God's promise coming to fruition. He brought them back to the land, though not everything is just as it should be. And she's aware of this, right? Jesus is doing his thing after having been baptized, beginning his healing and delivering ministry. Uh, he's built up quite a following, announcing the kingdom of God coming to earth, which will, of course, need a king. Our second person remembers the things she heard about Yahweh and his anointed one while growing up. Perhaps in the back of her mind is this prophecy from Isaiah 49 that we've talked about this morning. She is there that day for the Sermon on the Mount, listening on the hill, wondering what Jesus could mean and marveling at his authority that he speaks with. Uh, People think they have a pretty good grasp on being parents to their kids, but the love of God is greater, right? So Matthew chapter 7, verses 9 through 11. Which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? If you were the girl sitting on that hill, you might have noticed a connection here. The point is the same in Isaiah. People think they have a good grasp on being parents, but God is so much greater Truthfully, uh, Jesus is talking about a good parent, or at least not a horrible parent, one that's willing to feed their child food, um, who has a connection of love with their child, and how that pales in comparison to the gift-giving mastery of Yahweh. Their wildest dreams meant that the city would be restored, 
that people would have their glory back and they would have a way to worship God and be his people again. But then he sent a Messiah. He sent an anointed one to come and make all things right, to break down all the dividing walls and to bring everyone into the family of God. God fulfilled that promise in a hundredfold kind of ways than what they expected. And this is the same sort of thing. The maximum generous God knows how to give a better gift than a fish, than a stone. Better than a fish instead of a stone, right? This connection of love with with our children that we think we have mastery of is nothing compared to his love that we should be anticipating at all times. It's always wanting to break into our lives. Our Lord, from the prophecies of Isaiah in the midst of the exile uh, on to Jesus, and really from the beginning of the story of his creating to the most ultimate restoration of his holy city, is dying to break into the world with life-changing love. He's dying to break into the world with life-changing love. I actually want to do a show of hands. Who here has experienced the love of God breaking into their life and changing their story? You can think of a hundred stories or just one. Okay, who was anticipating it? Not even a little bit. Maybe you were. That's the point, is that it doesn't matter which one you were doing. He broke in and changed it. He broke in and changed it. It's good to see that we have faithful people here who are expecting the love of God. Uh, Maybe you have something that you can teach me, honestly. Uh, We will have a better time in the waiting, like I was saying, if we're anticipating the love of God to break in. Your lowest low doesn't seem as low. Your darkest moments don't seem to last as long. If you're anticipating his promises coming true, you don't dwell in the, the impossible negativity as much. And I don't mean, I don't mean forcing God's hand by leaving your cane at home or by not, no, seriously, I don't mean, I don't mean that you should ever stop taking medicine that a doctor asks you to take because you just believe God so hard. That's, that's not really the deepest form of faith that trusts him to take care of it, right? I, I was thinking of it when you spoke, Chase, about finances that uh, one of God's names is Jehovah Jireh, this word is to see it through. Like God is the one who sees. In the story when he brought um, Isaac, or he brought Abraham and wanted him to sacrifice Isaac to him. Instead, he told Abraham, use the ram, don't, you know, stop, 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 right? Um, Abraham said, you are God who sees it through. You are the God who sees what I need, sees what's missing, and knows how to make it right. So to trust God that he'll take care of things does not mean that you reject common wisdom reject good counsel, or reject um, you know, obedience to like, natural order things. Right? So I really, like, I didn't mean for it to be funny, really. Trusting God is not uh, something that forces his hand. It's something that waits in patient resignation for him to break in and do something. So all of this brings me to this point, right? The God who promises love and restoration expects us to anticipate it. And like I said, it's okay if you don't because he's going to love you anyway. It feels like he tells us what he's doing like all the time though. So really we just need to repair the connection between our head and our heart that helps us to be obedient and act on what we know already. That we can trust him. That he's going to make things right someday. That he never promised us we were going to have easy lives. In fact, he said we were going to have harder lives because of him. If we're trusting him to make it right, we have a better time in the meantime. 
So now with that, we, let's come back to our shoes. Put yourself back in your shoes. And actually, this is where our global perspective uh, comes in for today. Through this Advent series, we had a suggestion from Pastor Christina to um, incorporate a global perspective into each of the Advent candles that we are highlighting today. And last week, uh, we had Gaynell come up and share uh, Pastor Chase Esther too. That was awesome. Today, uh, we don't have someone coming up to share. I just observed something in another culture that really illuminates what we're talking about today. Okay, so over the past uh, couple of months, I've been having a lot of conversations with different members of Unison as well as family and friends where a specific topic comes up. Not on purpose, it just feels like God keeps bringing it to mind. This topic is growing up and moving out of the house. For example, I have a younger brother who's 17 uh, who actually has COVID right now, if you could pray for him. His name is Matt. I just found it yesterday. But anyway, he's 17 and uh, he's in his senior year of high school. He intends to go off to college next year But whether he goes to college or uh, takes a gap year or just changes his mind and doesn't go, no matter what he does, our culture sees him as ready to face life. On the whole, most families say, you're 18, you can sort it out. Not that they would necessarily kick him out, you know, go find your, you know. All people need different things. But the point is, on average, uh, we typically see people as ready for life, ready to face life once they turn 18. Uh, Things we reserve for adults and our culture become accessible to people when they turn 18. They're treated differently according to the law. They're unable to vote, make all kinds of new decisions. Many American families are ready for the kids to move out once they turn 18. I say this isn't as common these days due to extremely high costs of like housing and living and stuff, but most of my friends moved out of their parents' houses around that 18 to 22 range, and college was probably part of the mix. And let me say, uh, this just seems like a majority experience in our culture. Uh, People even at our church don't go out to face the world when they turn 18 or graduate high school. It's just on average, something I can observe. So like I said, I don't have anyone coming up to share today, but something else I see in the world illuminates what we're talking about today. In other countries, at least and especially Mexico, Central America, and South America, and I won't even make a fool of myself enough to guess how extensive this is, uh, families will keep their houses in constant construction by having rebar stick up out of the roof of their house. Uh, If you go to another country and you're, if you're on a mission trip or visiting or whatever, and you drive through communities, you might see houses that look like this. I have a picture here. It's just, what we have is just a square house with, you know, flat roof and straight down corners and rebar just sticking up. Metal that's about as thick as a finger, you know, seven or eight bars in each corner. And they just, they just leave their houses like this. Like, 90% of the houses in the neighborhood will look like this. And you always wonder why. Like, in America, we like to dress things up and have it look nice and pretty. And even though it's, you know, not finished on the inside, you know, we don't paint our garages, right? But it looks nice from the outside, okay? And it's space we probably don't even need anyway, but who cares? Point is, we make things nice and pretty, and they're all buttoned up, and they're done. But in other places, they leave their houses looking like this. And I was... I was always like, what? Why would you do that? What does that mean? Well, from what I can tell, there's a few reasons that people might do this. And at least the biggest major one is this. I wrote it down a specific way, so I have to read it, okay? At least one of them is that they constructed the house with plans to add a second floor onto the house someday. 
right? If the house is built with not very much money to spare uh, and the builders keep it cheaper to sell, they're more likely to sell it quickly. But in these other cultures, which are more collectivist on the whole than the U.S., they expect that their kids will grow up, get married, and move into the unit upstairs, the one that's not even built yet. So leaving that rebar just kind of makes costs less when you want to go add another house. That's just what you do. You grow up, get married, have kids. You live in the upstairs of your parents' house. That's often the biggest thing that a parent can give to their kids in our culture and in every, I mean, housing is huge, uh, a huge wealth thing. Uh, but in these other cultures, that's what they expected, okay? When you buy a house with these building materials sticking out of the roof, you're anticipating filling that house with children, son or daughter-in-laws, more children, aunts, uncles, friends, people along the way. You're anticipating the space above your house that's not even set for life yet being filled with love, being filled with the love of a bigger family, being filled with the love of everything I have is for you, right? The thing that a parent can give to their child is all that they are, right? They, they want to give them better than they had. That's all, that's all it means to be a good parent, right? You're anticipating having, the, uh, having love fill the space above your house. So when a mother or father or step-parent or grandparent runs to comfort their baby when that baby falls, the end of the world seems to be upon that baby, right? That is the love that broke into the world. The love that says, I know you don't get it, but I'm going to comfort you anyway. That love from our Heavenly Father that makes all things right. His promise is not that we won't stumble and fall again, but he did promise he will always be there when we do. So this Advent season, I ask that you would anticipate the love of God breaking in, changing your story, making something new happen. The obvious part about all of this is that Jesus is already here, right? If we think of the, the first person who heard the story and the person who heard Jesus speaking, then we think of ourselves, we add 2,000 years to all this. Jesus is already here, was, had his teaching, was killed and resurrected and ascended. He left us with the way to participate in his kingdom in this age, and he restores all things fully, right? He left us uh, with love. I'm allowed to say cheesy Christian things in an Advent sermon about love, okay? So turn off your cringe worry, right? All we are called to do is love, okay? All we are called to do is love. Uh, not convince people to believe in Jesus, not making sure the kids in our lives act the right way, not, you know, to sh uh, show off how put together our lives look from the outside. We're called to love the people next to us until he comes back. So how can you act like the people of God right up to before Jesus came to be born this month? Do you anticipate love being right around the corner? Do you lay out your life in such a way? Here's the final question. Do you lay out your life in such a way that you could add an, another whole floor worth of love and family to your house when it's the right time? Uh, join me in prayer in closing. Lord, you are good and your love endures forever. Thank you that we can trust your promises. Thank you that you've come through on so many of them. The sheer number of proofs that we have for you uh, should cause doubts to flee. But even when they don't, even when they don't, we believe that you love us. 
We believe that your love broke into the world through Jesus. And we believe that your love broke into our hearts so that we could show it to the other people you called us to show it to. So Lord, in this season of waiting, in this season of anticipating the love that Christ brings coming to our lives, would you show us the ways that uh, we can participate in that now? Would you remind us of all the ways that you've come through and remind us of the ways that you've asked us to, to turn around, love our neighbors? In Jesus' name I pray, amen.